welcome back to the Trophy Dash podcast. In this interview today, I get the pleasure to speak to Ben Sharp. Ben Sharp rode Little 500 from 1991 through 93 with Team Cinzano. Ben went from Little 5 rider to Cat 1 to Masters World Champion, and now he coaches some of the top cyclists in the world. We share Little 5 memories and we discuss different coaching values. It's a great conversation. It was great to catch up with an old Little Five rival. And I know you're going to enjoy this one. Thanks again, Ben, for your time. Hello, Ben. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Hey, it's going good. Hey, man. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, of course. I'm I'm. Uh, pumped for the opportunity yeah you know it seems like every time uh well i want to catch up with you for sure i want to talk about a wide range of things but every time i get on social media i see a picture of you with uh, an olympic olympian at the olympics the uh, world record holder world championships so you're the spotlight is on you right now that's for sure in (laughs) in the cycling world so thanks for taking the time to to catch up yeah, of course. I'm definitely enjoying my 15 minutes of fame yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a very small world, but yeah. Right. Uh, where, where are you living these days? I'm not, I think you're in Colorado, but I'm not for sure. Yeah, I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Boulder. I've been in Colorado for almost 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the Springs for the first half, and then I've been in Boulder for the second half of my time here. I see. Yeah. A lot of cyclists there, a lot of athletes there. A ton of athletes here. You can't, like, you know, you can't go down the road without seeing some Ironman, you know, world champion or a pro tour rider or a handful of, you know, domestic pros. And then that doesn't even include, like, the runners who I have no idea who they are, but I'm sure that they're amazing athletes. Mm-hmm. And the hundreds of thousands of people who want to be like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a great place yeah. to train and live. It's awesome. Oh, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Indy. Indianapolis. Um, I grew up in Broderpool. I went to uh, Bishop Chatard High School. You know, I, I I should say you and I we we rode little five at the same time. So yeah, we were actually. I was thinking about it. I think that we were in the same rookie class. Yeah. Okay. So my my first little five was ninety one. Same. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, so you grew up in Indianapolis, brought up area, went to Chittard. Yep. And what was uh, what was youth like for you? Were you an athlete? Were you a runner, swimmer, cyclist? Um, I was not especially athletic. Um, I kind of grew up in motorsports. Oh. Uh, my dad raced hydroplanes, so <laughs> boats. Um, but I, you know, I had every opportunity. I played baseball in little league as a kid. I played football. Um, the one sport that I kind of stuck with was soccer, uh, and I played soccer all through high school. Um, but I did not show the chops to really be uh, to really strongly consider going beyond that. Um, yeah. So when I when I left high school, I had been riding a bike for a couple of years fairly regularly, um, but you know I had no intentions of you know, being a professional, anything <laughs> when it came to the bike. Ah, 
when the when did that desire get launched? That, like I want to I want to commit more time to being on a bike. You know, I think uh, it was a fairly natural progression. I mean, I had raced a couple of years as a junior when I was in high school um, as a 17, 18 year old. And I was pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> never went to junior nationals or anything. Um, uh, but, you know, I I decided on IU for school uh, simply because I didn't know what I wanted to study. And so I figured that a university that had a lot of, you know, a wide array of offerings would be best for me. And, you know, just like every other freshman, my, my first year, my major declared was undecided. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, Indiana was just a a good fit for me. Um, And, you know, when I, when I got to school, um, I had, I had made some acquaintances through cycling that were at university um, and spent some time, you know, hanging out with them, especially the fall of my freshman year, doing some rides. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, my, my progression in college with cycling was very natural. I was neither hindered by school, nor was I hindered by cycling. Uh, uh, to go back to these junior races, like what, what were they like? Were they on the velodrome or they, uh, around Indianapolis? Yeah, my my first racing experiences were at the velodrome. Mm. Um, that's how I was first introduced really to the sport. Um, believe it or not, on Friday nights, like going to the velodrome was actually something that people did yeah. uh, to watch bike racing. And it was, you know, post LA Olympics, post Korea Olympics, um, a lot of success with the U S national team program. And there was a coach, um, in Indy named Roger young, who brought in a lot of international athletes. Mm -hmm. So there were times when there would be USA versus USSR grudge match, or, you know, some, some international event with some Kiwi riders and some Australians and some Canadians and U S riders. So there was a lot of energy and kind of just excitement around the velodrome. And I, you know, I, I, Obviously, I had a history of enjoying speed um, with my boat racing experience, um, and I was just really fascinated by the velodrome uh, and, you know, watching the races. Um, and I, you know, my, my very first velodrome experience was a program that was sponsored by the local newspaper that uh, had basically a stock bike program or a road bike program for the velodrome. Oh, I see. And you show up three Tuesdays in a row or whatever it was, and you get two hours of an instruction. And then after the third night, you're certified basically to race in the, in the road bike program every Tuesday night. Okay. Um, and, and when I was doing that, you know, I was 15, 14, whatever, 16 years old. Um, uh, I did meet a couple guys that, uh, had done the little 500, um, so I, you know, I had an awareness of the event, um, um, and especially, you know, on loop on cable was reruns or, <laughs> or not even reruns, but was, was breaking away. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I had seen that movie probably 15 times or something, um, just for the fact that it was from Indiana. And then, you know, that was amplified or my interest was amplified by the fact that there was bike racing involved. Hmm. Were you doing this by yourself? And how did you get over to the velodrome? Were your, were your parents um, driving you? Or? 
Yeah, you know, kind of like going to soccer practice. Um, I had a couple of high school buddies that uh, I talked into, you know, going to these races with me. And, um, you know, our parents would take turns driving us over there or whatever. And on occasion, you know, a big, big ride for me would be to ride from Broderpool over to the to the track and mm-hmm. do, you know, six laps of the velodrome and then ride home. <laughs> um, you know, the, the track was run by the parks department. It was basically an open facility where you pay your two dollar entry fee mm-hmm. or, you know, insurance fee and you could ride the track, you know, as much as you wanted. I see. And we had, we had just had the Pam games there in 87. Yeah. Yep. So there yep. was, like you said, there was still buzz to the place. Absolutely. Yeah. And I did actually in 87, I did go to, I talked to my dad into taking me to the Pan Am games, Pan Am games road race in Brown mm-hmm. County. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so that was my, that was actually the first real road race I ever got to see. Um, I remember one of the most exciting things was that uh, in the parking lot, uh, or, you know, in the, in the field where we all parked, I saw a car that had a bike on the rack that was a red mossy, just like, uh, just like <laughs> Dave, Dave Stoller. Stoller bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was super excited to see that. Oh, uh, so you, you have this little desire, this little flame cycling in you and you come to IU and are you thinking about riding little five when you get to IU or are you just still trying to figure out life and who you are and how you fit in? Yeah, I, I ha- it was absolutely high on my priority list. Um, by that time, I knew Adam Giles. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd spoken to him. You Cutter know, alumni, times. yeah. Yeah, spoken to him a few times about cutters. Um, I had friends that were <laughs> Delta Kais. Um, <laughs> uh, I had friends that were Chinzano guys. Um, I had, you know, a couple of friends. So, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, and I knew Bilko, um, Acacia you know, from Acacia. So, you know, I, I, I had some, just by virtue of having been participating in some bike races as a junior, um, I had met some people. Um, so, you know, I, I had some, I don't want to call them connections, but I had some acquaintances, um, and I was given, you know, a few options to sort of explore. And I sort of spent that fall, um, you know, just being a freshman on, on, on campus and enjoying, you know, some, some freedom, but also, you know, talking to each of these sort of groups about the possibility of participating in little 500 with them. Yeah. And you ultimately choose Sanzano and they had won the race in 89. So that's still that's right. fresh in everyone's memory. Definitely fresh in everyone's memory. Um, the guys that were uh, basically coming back to the team um, were uh, Dave Anderson and Rob Ochin. Mm. And they had been, gosh, they, they had been on a dorm team like two years before that. So the year that Chinzano won, they had raced for one of the dorms. I can't even remember which one. Um, and then at that time, and I don't even know what the rules are now, but you had to sit out a year if you wanted to change or something. Um, and so, you know, they were, they were going to be new to Chinzano also. Um, but we had Jose de la Cruz, um, and, um, you know, uh, still in communication with the guys that had won in 89. Um, and we had, you know, I, I went to like a, sort of a Chinzano call out and there were, I think seven or eight of us. Um, 
uh, that, that showed up. And, you know, that, that sort of became the group from which the team would be chosen. And did, did you just fall in love with it? Was it something you, you, you figured, you realized you found your place? Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed the guys. I enjoyed not being a part of the fraternity program. It just wasn't for me. Um, and I liked that these guys had aspirations beyond the little 500. Mm -hmm. Um, but I very much enjoyed being a part of something that was important to the campus and that, you know, the vast majority of students had some, if nothing else, awareness of, um, um, it was interesting though. I, I broke my collarbone in September of my freshman year. Um, uh, and I, you know, like I said, I enjoyed those next few months of just being, you know, on campus and being exposed to all kinds of social opportunities. And so I was not riding my bike much at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I showed up for that call out and, you know, everything's great. And, you know, on paper, I'm definitely one of the best prospects because I, if nothing else, I had race experience, um, but uh, showed up for the very first race on the first day of school uh, in, in the spring <laughs> of 91. And we did the Heltonville ride. And, uh, I, like I said, I had not been riding my, my collarbone break was pretty bad. Um, it was severely displaced and at the time they didn't do surgeries. And so uh. it just took me a long time to heal. Um, you know, like I said, plus I was just enjoying other things about campus life. Right. And, uh, that first ride, I literally walked up two of the Hills Oh no! <laughs> um, on the backside of Lake Monroe. <laughs> well, and, to, to your credit, gearing was different then. It was, but it wasn't different for everyone else I was riding with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were all on the same gearing. So I, you know, I was very ill prepared for 50 or 60 mile rides, um, you know, from nothing. Um, but the, you know, the guys stuck by me, you know, they, well, on that particular ride, they're waiting for me at the top of the hills. <laughs> um but they stuck by me and were very supportive throughout that spring. And, you know, when you're young like that and I had some aptitude, I think that, you know, my rate of progression was, was really, you know, from, from any perspective was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I improved so quickly and I could feel myself, you know, kind of every, you know, week after week and, you know, presumably month after month, um, kind of surpassing the guys that, uh, you know, that were waiting for me at the top of the hill, um, you know, all those weeks earlier and did, working my way up sort of through the group. Did that surprise you that you were able to handle the workload and you were progressing maybe quicker than your peers? It definitely did. I mean, because at this point I had shown, you know, like I had shown skills at bike racing, but no like aptitude. I hadn't won anything. Um, you know, so I, I didn't know where I stood. Like I said, as a junior, I had done probably 10 races. And if I didn't get last, I got second to last in all of them. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't know what, what the, uh, what to expect really. Yeah. What kept you coming back? Just that desire to do it or. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of stubbornness. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was definitely, I wouldn't know. I don't know if I'd call it obsessed, but I was, I was very, I'll just call it obsessed. I was yeah. obsessed with the sport. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, like I was taking in as much information as I could. And of course at that time, 
you know, as, as my friends like to say, back in the 1900s, uh, <laughs> we didn't have internet. So there, there was not as much information available. Um, so I was, you know, buying magazines and mm -hmm. I worked at a bike shop in the, in the winter over break and in the summers. And so, you know, I was just gleaning as much information as I could. Um, and, you know, if nothing else, I just appreciated the sport and I, I didn't know what sort of, um, potential I, I did or didn't have, but I just was, you know, it was kind of the beginning of my becoming a student of the sport. Yeah. And at the time it was for my own, uh, you know, my own interests. Um, but you know, years later as a coach, I kind of did, you know, I did and do the same thing, which is just, again, make myself a student of the sport or the student of the physiology or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to get to that. We're gonna get to your coaching. Sure. Uh, sure. So uh, I remember your team and, and you, you guys were always on bikes and you were on all kinds of bikes, whether mountain bike, uh, road bike, you were riding bikes to campus. You guys were on a variety of bikes or always biking. You were, you were really all around cyclists and you didn't just focus on the little 500. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think that that was in a lot of ways might've been um, our team's downfall mm -hmm. as far as success in the little 500. Not that we weren't successful, but we don't have mm -hmm. any W's in the, in that column. Um, but um, you know, like I said, that was one of the things that attracted me to the team was just that all the guys that I was looking up to for the most part had aspirations beyond just the little 500 or at least race experience beyond the little 500. So yeah, it was absolutely, you know, I, I had a, a campus bike and I had a mountain bike and I had, I even had a cyclocross bike and a road bike and mm -hmm. <laughs> track bike. And so I just, I loved being on two wheels. Yeah. And uh, you know, how was your little five experience? And you know, we can talk about one of the best races hmm. uh, in 93, that how close that finish was and, you know, based on in the rivalry going into that, but overall, how do you look back on your little five experience? It, it was, uh, I mean, just you asking me that honestly gives me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, like I've been to world championships, I've been to the Olympics, not as an athlete, but as a coach and, um, to be able to perform this sport in front of your peers, um, you know, it, it's quote, the most important thing end quote that you have going on. Mm -hmm. And it's just an amazing opportunity to just show off what you're capable of and, and to invest all this time and energy into trying to become an expert or masterful at something. And then, you know, the, the test at the end is, you know, this two hour race where you get to basically demonstrate what you've been working for all this time. And there's a level of appreciation, I think, that takes place or that, that, the crowd at that event has that is unique because everyone, you know, uh, you do a little 500 and then on Monday you go back to English class with, you know, 10 people that were at the race. Mm -hmm. um, and they may not have been in your section and they may have been cheering for someone else. And they might be, you know, fraternity guys or whatever, but they have an appreciation for what you did. And, you know, there really is the, the notion and idea of, you know, big man on campus <laughs> right. when it comes to that race. I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but, 
at that time, you know, for the whole month preceding the event, the daily student was doing a profile of each row of the race and, you know, team by team, rider by rider. And, you know, it was, it was, for me, it was really, um, it, it made me feel like I was part of something special and it made me feel special to be a part of something special. Um, so, uh, you know, those are some of my absolute fondest (laughs) memories of being on the bike and to being around a bike. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was some of the biggest heartbreak, um, Mm. but also (laughs) just some of the biggest accomplishment. Yeah. Um, it's all that. And what was your final race? 1993. It was. So this, you know, people who haven't watched it, it's a great, bike race great finish comes down between you and todd hancock basically at the end and yep. this wonderful sprints and you know the camera angle is not good <laughs> it, yep. looks, it looks really close at the finish uh but ultimately they award it to delta kai and and that like what about that like <laughs> what about that <laughs> Oh, where to begin? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was so much wrapped up in that, right? I mean, Todd yeah. and I were, um, we were teammates on a USCF team. Mm. Um, so you guys, we were, you guys knew each other inside and out. Yeah, we knew each other very well. Um, and, and even though we were teammates on this other team, there, were, there was this underlying, like, you know, I, I don't know if he would admit it, but I'll admit it, that there was this underlying, like, kind of tension. Yeah. Um, you know, because you have this giant elephant of the little 500. And, um, I would say that that whole spring, it was clear, uh, that the race was going to end how it ended. Um, it was going to be between the two of us, um, you know, and, and we had demonstrated that actually in, in one of the preceding events in the missing out, uh, a couple weeks before the top three in the, in the race was also the top three in the missing out, just a slightly different order. Um, and so, you know, we had dem- and, and the third was Joel Kelly um, from Pike, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it, it, our, our two teams were, you know, obviously big rivals. Um, there was substantial amount of history, not necessarily negative history, but just history between the two teams, um, because a lot of the guys on Delta Chi also raced in other events outside of the little 500. And so, you know, your paths cross all summer. Um, and you might be teammates with some of those guys, you might not, you know, and so it just develops this, you know, in a sense, a rivalry, but again, not necessarily in a negative way. Um, but the, the race really played out exactly as we had hoped and as we had planned. Um, we were never really on the back foot. We never had any desperation. I rode three sets. I rode the the opening set. Um, and then I rode a little bit right around the middle of the race and then, you know, I didn't have to uh, do any cleanup or anything. And I was able to get on the bike exactly when I wanted to at the end of the race. Mm-hmm. And so from an execution standpoint, the team did awesome. Um, we, you know, we put myself in uh, a race winning position and I'd had a, um, I'd had a conversation with Jay Paulsgrove, uh, another uh, Cutters alumni and race winner, um, just about how to ride the sprint. Um and, uh, you know, his, his comment to me was, everyone's going to be looking at you, um, you know, get lost a little bit, you know, kind of come from behind, don't lead it out down the back stretch, and let others kind of forget about you in the last couple hundred meters. 
And, you know, I, I took that to heart. You know, here's a guy that I had a lot of respect for, um, both as a person as an, as a, and as a cyclist. And he's won the race. Um, and, I, and I did that. The problem was that if you ever watch the race, you'll see that going down the back straight, I'm second wheel behind Todd. And um, Todd uh, kind of like slides a little bit going into the third turn mm -hmm. and slows down. And it was my intention to come underneath him, uh, going down, you know, going into three and four and especially out of the home straight, but he slid a little bit, did kind of a two wheel drift going into three. And I just carried so much speed that I came on the outside, which was not what I had wanted to do. Um, I definitely wanted to come underneath. So then I had to attempt to go the long way around all the way through three and four, and then, you know, into the home straight. It's really tough to pass in those turns at speed. Yeah. It really is. Yep. Mm. Ah. Yep. Um, yep. You know, all victories in life are shattered by defeats. And the, the you know, in the experts will tell you, you learn the most about yourself through defeat. And, but you guys, yeah, you guys had a wonderful team. And I'm sure uh, it's, it's, it still stings. <laughs> But it definitely still stings. I mean, despite, you know, whatever successes I've had, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've won an elite national championship. I I've got 17 national championships and two masters world championships. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my teammates from that era, um, have gone on to, you know, do very well in Ironman competitions to win triathlon national championships to set best, splits mm. in other triathlons um and we all kind of agree that uh if it weren't for that defeat that we may not be the athletes that we are now ah. we may not have continued to pursue sport in the way that we have um you know I, I i think you went you learn a lot about winning by by losing that's for yeah. sure yeah so that really was a lot of fuel for you to keep cycling for sure 100 percent and yeah. in the back of my mind, I had an idea that that would be my last little five mm -hmm. um, by age and everything. I was eligible the next year, but, um, you know, I ran afoul of the, of the upgrading rules in USCF. So, mm -hmm. um, I was not, I was not eligible my senior year, mm -hmm. but you kept on writing and you even wrote after college. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I graduated in 94. And that was uh, two years before the Atlanta Olympics. So I, you know, I spent the next two years kind of uh, trying to be my, the best cyclist I could be for the Olympic trials uh, in 96 on the track. Um, didn't have a great trials, um, but, you know, was there and uh, got to see the show, if nothing else, mm -hmm. um, but did well enough to, um, kind of prolong my cycling career a little bit. I spent the next two years primarily focusing on the track. Um, there were a couple, there was a, there was a big national race series uh, all over the U S that I participated in, in 97 and 98. Um, and in 98, I raced for the team that would go on to become jelly belly. Um, at the time they were sponsored by icon Lexus. Um, and now they're, wildlife generation, I think is what they're called. Um, so, you know, I, I got to again, travel the country and race my bike really to my heart's content, uh, for those next few years. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you make the transition into 
like one job and then like where does coaching come into it? Yeah. So in, um, I, I graduated from IU with a degree in English and Spanish and a certificate to teach both. Hmm, okay. And when my, my, you know, I'm going to call it the first chapter of my racing career or my first racing career ended in 98. I took a teaching position in 99 at Cathedral High School in Indianapolis um, and taught high school Spanish there. Um, and, you know, I was still riding my bike a little bit, but not particularly competitively or anything. Um, and just out on a ride with a buddy of mine, uh, I got, I got hit by a van, uh, basically, you know, I didn't get run over. I got bounced over the top. Um, and had some fairly serious injuries, you know, broke my back and lost some teeth and, you know, broke my hand and, you know, whatever. Um, at the end of the day, very lucky. Um, but spent a little time in the hospital, spent a ton of time recovering. And it was during that time that I realized that I just was not satisfied with, uh, with my cycling career. And I decided to go back at it. Uh, and in 2000, I, I, uh, did a program in Belgium where I spent about five months racing in Belgium. And it was kind of during that time, especially with my teammates in Belgium, that, uh, and and this was actually true during my college days as well, that I just sort of became a reference to people on, on training. Um, It wasn't anything that I actively pursued. I had no like formal instruction whatsoever. I was, you know, definitely self-taught, but again, with limited, limited resources. And, um, but more and more, you know, people would ask me advice on training or, you know, want to pick my brain on ideas or even, you know, uh, brainstorm. I would, you know, we would collectively brainstorm on coaching and training. Mm -hmm. Um, so I came back from Belgium and, uh, you know, I, I had this amazing amount of fitness that I really wanted to capitalize on. So I decided to continue racing domestically. Uh, and I did so for a couple of years. Um, but right at the beginning of, you know, that, that second part of my domestic career, I guess in 2001, um, I had a couple people approach me and ask me if I would coach them. And I just, you know, I was kind of like, well, I guess I'm not opposed to it, but I'm not super interested, but then, you know, they introduced the idea that they could actually pay me for it. (laughs) And then it became a lot more interesting to me. Um, (laughs) you know, because I, you know, I was aware that it would take some time, but to be compensated for that time, you know, it might facilitate being able to continue to race my bike. Are you, are um, you full, full-time bike rider at this point? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I'm spending my winters, you know, uh, uh, working some random jobs and trying to mm-hmm. save money so that I can race bike, you know, nine yeah. months, eight months of the year. Yeah. So yeah, I'm full-time bike <laughs> racer. Um, and if, you know, these guys are, are willing to take a risk with me, take a chance on me um, and, you know, pay me to take that chance, then I'm on board. Um, and what I found in those first couple of years was just that um, not only was I passionate about this topic, but I was, you know, using a lot of the methodology that I learned in education. Um, so I may not have been, Mm. you know, I I definitely didn't have a physiology background. I'd never taken an exercise science class formally. Uh, but I did have, you know, education of being a bike racer myself, as well as the sort of the instruction and, and foundation of experience of having been a teacher. And that's really what I relied on was just the ability to, 
listen to my athletes and then to be able to adapt and adopt based on what they were telling me. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I've been coaching the cutter team since 1997, however Mm -hmm. many years that is. And as a coach, I've grown myself, you know, sure. not, uh, and I've over time developed some values that I use to kind of guide me. Five, I got five values that I use. I'd love to run them by you and get your feedback yeah. on them and, and see how, how they might be different from little five level versus the elite level. You know, with, with we essentially take whoever comes, right. <laughs> and we, we have yep. two, we have two rules. One is, uh, don't be a jerk. The other ones don't quit. If you, if you comply to those two rules, you're on the team basically. Uh, and, but it's normally a self limiting or uh, it limits people drop out. So uh, my first number one value is joy. So, you know, it all starts with joy for me. Like you have to enjoy the experience. You have to have fun with it. You know, the body follows your mind. And if your mind's in a joyful place, you're going to get more out of it. Mm. And uh, so tell me about like as an elite level athlete, you know, it seems like you can lose the joy sometime when you're when you're on the sharp edge of the spear and you're aiming for a world record. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think that that's true, though, in any pursuit in your life. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to necessarily be in pursuit of an athletic achievement. I, I'm sure that there are plenty of very successful, I don't know, doctors or real estate agents or lawyers or whatever mm-hmm. that, um, you know, are very passionate about their uh, their occupations and their careers. Um, but, you know, it's it doesn't always bring it's not always joyful. Um, you know, hopefully that the, the things, the rewards overshadow the, the bad times. Um, but I think that that's a balance that everyone has to strike and something that anyone should really desire to achieve no Mm -hmm. matter what, what, uh, you know, what walk of life they're in. Right. But I, I I would say that it's definitely true that, um, a lot of athletes, you know, kind of. (laughs) get to this point where sort of like a woe is me sort of condition where, you know, how hard bike racing is and this travel schedule and, you know, it's raining today and blah, 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 blah. But the the thing that I remind people is that, you know, this isn't rocket science. We're not saving lives. Um, if, if it's not enjoyable, it's really probably not worth doing. But there are going to be moments where it's not enjoyable, and that's okay. It's just more if it's um, categorically, you know, not pleasant, then, yeah, it's probably not the thing for you right now, or something else is out of balance. But I have, I've seen, you know, I, I think that um, stubbornness and the desire to persevere is a very, <laughs> very powerful thing. And I have seen very successful athletes that don't have joy in their lives. Mm. Um, but I also think that when you're doing it as a profession, um, you know, the, where you fit on that continuum between, you know, pleasure and profession, you know, yeah. might change. Right. So, you know, when you, when you're a 10 year cycling, uh, you know, world tour veteran, you know, going to, 
northern France in April for those races where it's raining sideways and you know it, it's just not that much fun uh, for a lot of people um, but it's their chosen profession just like for a doctor on call getting up at 2 a.m to go do emergency surgery is not yeah. going to be fun um, but it's you know it's part of the profession and it's you know not the most fun aspect of what they're doing for sure but it's you know, it just comes with the territory, unfortunately. Yeah. So you, you get, we got macro joy and then micro joy. So yeah. in, in those little moments when it is 30 degrees and raining, I, it might not be so joyful, but right. if you pan out, like this is what I'm doing because I ultimately do enjoy the experience of it. Right. Uh, have you had athletes, like uh, maybe older athletes that have kind of lost that spark? And, and, oh, for and, sure. And, and, and how do you like get them to reconnect to that? You know, I, I don't know if I feel like it's my job to mm. convince them mm -hmm. <laughs> to continue to be athletes. It's my job, I think, as, as just a human to uh, convince them to continue to be helpful um, and to lead a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. But I think that um, if, if ser you know, quote, I'm going to use quotes, if serious <laughs> training is not a part of their lifestyle or is not, you know, keeping them balanced, then, you know, I, I actually can support that sort of decision. Um, it, the, the caveat is that they have to be honest with themselves and they have to be honest with me from the standpoint of, you know, it, it's easy to blame recreation for the woes that are going on in your life when the yeah. truth is a lot of times recreation or what are keeping you balanced mm -hmm. and, you know, you actually need that. And I've had athletes stop coaching um, because, you know, they couldn't find that balance. They weren't enjoying themselves. They couldn't imagine swinging their leg over yet again, you know, it's 7 a.m. before they go to work at 9 a.m. or whatever. Um, and then they come back and they realize, you know, it wasn't really, that wasn't the problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was actually the solution. I just had other stuff going on and I was imbalanced in other ways. And maybe my um, expectations weren't realistic. Uh, and so, you know, they come back with a slightly, you know, more <laughs> insight into what truly makes them tick and what makes them happier or joyful. Right. Yeah. Well, that goes into my next value, uh, leads right into it, which is feedback. You know, the dialogue mm -hmm. between the coach and uh, the writer and the writer and himself and the, maybe the writer and the team and how important feedback is, I think, in that relationship. Um, you know, and times have changed a little bit. Feedback in college can be kind of challenging and we have all these mediums to do it, but um, how do you, like, as you're, I'm sure you're not with your athletes every day. They might be around the country, around the world. How do you engage in that feedback process? Yeah, I absolutely have athletes all over the world. I have athletes that I've never met before in person. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, and thanks to the, the magic of the internet, um, <laughs> I have, uh, opportunities to um, provide feedback as well as ask for feedback um, from the athletes. So, you know, I use uh, tools, online tools. Um, I post their training uh, in a calendar format using these tools. And then um, after their rides, they download their data from whatever recording device they're using. And then, 
you know, then they provide feedback on what actually took place during the ride um, or during the training session. And I would say, you know, five out of six days a week, four out of six days a week, you know, no feedback, direct feedback is necessarily required uh, from me just because it might be a recovery ride or it's just a, a skills type workout. But for those, you know, for those sort of benchmark breakthrough type workouts, um, you know, I'll look at their files and, and I have access to, you know, the heart rate data and their power data and whatever else they're recording. And so I can give some feedback, but I find that, um, for me to provide the best feedback possible, uh, I need to know, you know, I, I, I need to understand their interpretation of what happened. Um, you know, I, I've looked at thousands of power files in my, in my years, and I can certainly, you know, make some guesses on what took place during a ride, but I find that only when I get some context from the athlete on their interpretation of what happened, does that picture really reveal itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I equate it to going to a, like an art museum and you go into the modern art museum and you've got these like paint splatters on a canvas <laughs> And you're looking at it, it's just a bunch of colors and it's pretty and you might be able to make a little rhyme or reason out of it. But it's only when you read that placard of information that comes, you know, from the artist's perspective that you really get that context for what was going on when the artist created this artwork. And it's the same thing with a power file. I mean, I can make my guesses and I can make my own interpretation, but it's only when the athlete tells me what what they experienced that I truly get an understanding of what took place, um, in that training. And I, I remind them all the time. I don't coach the power meter. I don't coach the bicycle. I'm coaching you mm-hmm. and you're the expert on you, but I need to bridge the gap between the information that I'm getting and your experience of what's taking place and your, your perspective of what's taking place. It, you know, that develops or that requires a lot of trust for someone like especially someone uh, at the world level chasing a four a world record in a you know the individual pursuit or something like the level of trust has to be pretty high there to be vulnerable enough to give you honest feedback absolutely and I, it takes a long time to develop that trust um i i don't i often find that i don't hit my groove with an athlete or my athlete and i don't really like sync up for several months or even you know, longer mm-hmm. into the whole coaching process. And that's, you know, that's a big investment on both parts um, f- for sure. But I think that, you know, it, it can take a year or two to really like understand each other. And to, you know, I call it speak the same language. Yeah. Um, you know, you understand what my expectation is from this training. And then I understand, you know, the, the vocabulary that you're using um, to describe that training. That's the magic. Yeah. Uh, the next value is tribe. So finding your team, your group, a group that supports each other, finding your unique place and having that support system. Uh, you know, in, in little five, it seems it's pretty obvious, right? You, you got Shenzano, you got your teammates, a couple coaches, but at the elite level, what's that tribe like? Would it be like a massage therapist maybe, or your coach or your bike mechanic? And, and how do riders kind of, uh, lean or do they need a tribe or do they like, you know, talk about that for me? Yeah. All the riders need a tribe. They may not admit it, <laughs> um, but, but no one is on an Island. Um, even if you're a privateer, you know, you look at someone like you've brought up the, 
the 4k world record. I mean, you look at someone like Ashton, um, you know, he's, he's been a part of a team, but he's not really, you know, he doesn't fit the typical mold of an endurance cyclist. He's not on a big pro road team. Um, he's had to really put together a lot of the different components and pieces himself. So a big part of his tribe, for example, is his family. Mm. Um, his family is very supportive. Um, you know, pre COVID they were flying to all of his international competitions to support him, um, to give him a shout, you know, in the corner so that they can hear, he can hear them when he's going around. Um, but then he also has, um, you know, a strength endurance or a strength and conditioning coach who's a big part of his tribe. Um, and then his domestic partner is a big part of his tribe. And then his, you know, personal coach. And uh, then when he's traveling, it would be the national team coaches and the national team staff, which might include uh, physiologists as well as nutritionists. Um, you know, and they may not travel with him, but they are resources for him through the U.S. Olympic Committee. And then also uh, the mechanic that's on staff with USA Cycling, as well as uh, any soigneurs or therapists that are on staff uh, for that particular event. One thing that professional athletes have to do, professional cyclists have to do, is they have to be a little bit flexible. You know, you might go to a World Cup in Colombia in December, and you have this staff with this mechanic and this soigneur, and then you go to Melbourne, Australia for a world cup in February. And then you have a completely different mechanic mm. and completely mm. different one year. So I think that a lot of these, especially I'm going to call them professional track athletes sort of have their own team behind the team. And then they have the team that's at the events. And sometimes those, those roles overlap, but oftentimes they might be completely different individuals. Um, but I think that each, you know, the need for, that tribe is, uh, it's definitely acknowledged with each athlete, but their individual needs might vary. Yeah. You know, one athlete might not need a nutritionist, but another athlete, you know, relies heavily on their relationship with their nutritionist. And one athlete might have a very strong relationship with their sports psychologist and another athlete, you know, might not. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it's highly variable. Um, and then you have teammates, you know, like I said, you, you might go to an event in December and you have these four teammates with you and then you go to the event in February and it might be a completely different group of athletes. Um, and so, you know, obviously in any um, social setting like that with a large group, you're going to have certain uh, affinity towards certain people and maybe less so to others. But, uh, you know, you do your best to create an environment where everyone has the opportunity to succeed. Yeah. Well, that's. That, it's good to know that no one's out there trying to do it by themselves and they, we still need the tribe around us. Yeah. It's tough. You know, I mean, those are for the, the more accomplished athletes. There are plenty of athletes that are, you know, rubbing their nickels together, just mm -hmm. trying to get the, you know, the, the, the minimal amount of support that's required for them to continue to succeed. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that there are plenty of people that, you know, are chasing domestic calendars and races that, you know, don't have a mechanic, don't have a swan year, don't have a massage therapist, don't have a nutritionist, don't have a psychologist. You know, they're, they're staying in the back of their van, uh, driving from race to race and just trying to do it as best they can so that they can get to that point where they start to establish this team around them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, my next value is innovation. 
always looking for ways to improve improve on the bike off the bike improve yourself internally externally like you know i know you work at stages power meter yeah you guys are leading edge on the innovation side of it and i I would think innovation at the elite level is uh, highly valued yeah for sure i mean everyone's chasing those you know it's very cliche but the reason it's a cliche is because it's true (laughs) everyone's chasing those marginal gains Mm -hmm. um i had my first experience with this at the little 500 actually um it was it was very enlightening to see the delta kai guys celebrating on the podium Mm. uh, in skin suits (laughs) yeah you know, and, uh, you know, we were all issued the same jerseys, but they had the presence of mind and forethought to, to sew those together and, right, you know, to, to make a more streamlined piece of kit. Um, and, you know, at the time they were the only people that had ever seen do that. Um, so I, you know, that was, that was definitely eye opening and something that's always resonated with me and that I've been able to kind of amplify and magnify depending on the arena that I'm working in. Um, so for sure, uh, innovation is, is a critical piece. And that's something that, you know, I think elite athletes, especially track athletes are very, very aware of, um, because their races are decided by, you know, hundreds or sometimes even thousands of a second and every little piece of, um, equipment on their bike is heavily scrutinized and they decide, you know, well in advance, uh, they do their research and preparation well in advance to decide what the optimal piece of equipment is going to be for them. And they're always making decisions, you know, between, for example, comfort and performance. And for a four minute event, comfort, you know, takes a back seat to performance. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you're doing a, a 50 kilometer Madison, and you're going to be out there for 50 minutes, uh, per, you know, performance and comfort have to sort of line up a little bit more mm-hmm. and they have to, um, sync up and, yeah. you know, then you have everyone and everywhere in between as far as, you know, how you're prioritizing those different aspects of riding a bike fast. You know, innovations and in training methods have changed a lot since we wrote little five where, we didn't even have heart monitors, right? Heart rate monitors. Now yeah. you, now you get down to the, the indoor smart trainers and the power meters. What, it, what do you think's next on the horizon for like training wise? That's a great question. I think that um, we're seeing a lot of development on some more internal metrics. Um, there are devices that allow you to measure, for example, your glucose levels um, and provide feedback on your head unit. So you can Mm -hmm. get real-time feedback on how fueled you are, um, as well as your core temperature. So there's another device that Mm. you can wear that is external, you know, so these are not invasive devices. They're all external and they're able to measure and broadcast your uh, temperature. So you get an idea of if you're working at a suboptimal range, um, most likely too hot. Um, you know, especially as, as things are heating up around the world, um, with weather patterns and everything, this is, this is a topic of conversation more and more regularly is just heat management. So I think that, um, integration uh, in devices, so things like power meters being, 
um, <laughs> integrated into bikes, as well as these sort of devices that measure things that are happening internally in your body that we have never been able to get a window on previously are sort of the where I see the the next bit of innovation. And, you know, those those devices exist, but they need to we need more accessibility. Um, they're they're not readily available, um, especially in the U.S. market at this point. But I think that that's going to be changing in the in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, how old adage that to win the Tour de France to be a really good cyclist, you had to be 30s, late 30s. But that's being flipped on its head now with these young kids. Mm. Like, any sense of why that is, or like, is it the indoor, or is it just times have changed? I think it's. uh, I think it's the technology that's available. Mm -hmm. I think that um, you know, even within the current generation of racers, you know, so we're talk. Let's talk about a you know from nineteen to. For all intents and purposes, I mean, we'll say forty. Okay. Um, the 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 information that is available to, you know, this crop of 19, 20 year olds, and that has been available to them all through their junior careers, uh, was not available to these, you know, to the forty year olds when they were thirty or even twenty five, let alone when they were eighteen or nineteen. So I think that uh, training in general. You know, I'm going to speak in gross generalities, but I think that training is more effective and probably more efficient. I think that's the big difference is I think that um, these young athletes are very and, and to be clear, they're guided by, you know, talented, intelligent, curious coaches. Um, and I think that these young athletes are um, not spending as much time on their bikes, uh, therefore are not as fatigued and are able to um, produce, you know, high amounts of power um, uh, right out of the gate because they're very efficient with their training and they're much more knowledgeable. And there's just so much more information available. And I think that, you know, the more information is available, the more it benefits the younger athletes and the younger generation that are accustomed to having that information available. And you think about, you know, stick in the mud, the, the cliche of, you know, veteran athletes that, you know, this worked for me for the last 10 years. So why would I change? Well, you know, that may be true, but there's probably a better way. Um, and these young kids and their coaches are tapping into that better way just because they have more information. So to be an elite level athlete now or a cyclist, you certainly have to be willing to innovate and be, to utilize all these new technologies. I think you have to be open-minded to it for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my last value is transformation uh, where, you know, we're all evolving humans and the bike can certainly help us explore ourselves. It can help us ask the big questions and get answers to the big questions. So, uh, you know, in little five, we get a kid join the cutters who's 18 years old, right out of high school by the time he graduates, like he's a different person. Mm-hmm. He's matured. He's starting to find himself, what, what his interests are. His body's changed. And you know, I just love bikes for that transformative opportunity. And I, and I imagine this still exists at the elite level. Um, 
can you tell me some stories or even your own, even your own cycling experience, how bikes have helped transform you from, you know, from youth to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you, you talking about that little five kid, that was me. I mean, I was, I was knees and elbows, uh, when I was 18, I came to school and by the time I left college, you know, I was a, I was a category one, I was competing at national championships, um, you know, uh, on the road and the track. And I was a much different athlete. And, you know, because of those experiences, I was a much different person. I had the, uh, the pleasure of working for the U S uh, for the junior national team as the, as the, basically the head coach or the coach of the junior national team for the road, um, for basically from 2007 to about 2011. And during that time, I got to work with just some phenomenal young athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a great class of athletes or a great period of time. We had, uh, Taylor Finney was from that era. Um, we had um, Lawson Craddock, Ian Boswell, Nate Brown, Gavin Mannion, Jacob Rathy. Mm-hmm. That's just on the men's side. On the women's side, we had Kendall Ryan and Corinne Rivera, um, Sinead Miller, uh, Jerrica Hutchinson, you know, just a, a lot of really talented athletes. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, and I'm sure that you relate to this, is just um, uh, what, what good humans they've become. Um, you know, I, I wanted them all to be great bike racers for sure. Um, and you know, obviously that was my, my official focus, but I wanted those athletes to leave my program as better people. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the people that they are today. I mean, one of, one of the best stories I have is that, you know, Lawson came into the program as a 15 or 16 year old and came to Europe. Um, you know, and he's kind of a snot nosed kid and, you know, they're pretty young at that age. They're, you know, even younger, uh, you know, than, than you get to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he uh, was an exceptional junior athlete. He won a lot of races. He was a medalist at Junior Worlds, you know, and all of that's great. Um, and then he, you know, he goes on to a world tour career and he races in the Tour de France. And um, he sees this opportunity to, uh, uh, do good for someone else during the tour de France. He has a horrible crash in the first week of the tour. It might've even been the first day. Um, you know, he, he's finishing strictly on grit. He's all bandaged up. He's beat up. And, um, for every day that, um, that he finished, he pledged to donate some amount of money to the velodrome in Houston, the Alkek mm-hmm. velodrome. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of blew up and became this little bit of a social media sensation where um, he got other people to donate and to contribute. And he ended up finishing the Tour de France, um, mm-hmm. you know, from this position of being dead last. And like I said, beat up and, and just destroyed physically. But he was pushed mm-hmm. every day by the idea that he was doing good for other people. And then he encouraged other people to do good for other people. And I just, you know, I don't remember how much money they made in in hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to go to, you know, this fledgling velodrome that needed a lot of repair work and resurfacing and all this stuff and bikes and programming for kids and all this stuff. And I was just so proud. I was proud of him for finishing the tour, of course, but I was more proud of this, um, just this concept that he took and he really ran with and, 
you know, this, this idea that he could do something that's, you know, presumably a very selfish pursuit. Um, bike racing is immensely selfish at, at the elite level. Um, but he actually, you know, flipped it and used his experience and his opportunity and his voice and his, basically his brand to do good for other people. And he mm -hmm. didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. You know I mean? There was, there, I'm sure that he had no intention of doing anything like that when he started at the tour that year, but you know, it just showed just the, the innovation that he was willing to, um, you know, the, the thought process that he had to, like I said, to do something good for somebody else or for a large group of people. And I'm just very proud of that. And I don't think that that snot-nosed kid who came into the program to Belgium as 15, 16-year-old necessarily would have been able to conceptualize that. Yeah. Um, but I would like to think that, you know, his being in my group of, of riders for two or three years might have had, you know, some influence on his ability to kind of process that and think beyond his own little bubble. Mm -hmm. That's a great story. Uh, ben, what's next for you? What are you working on? What are you trying to get better at either coaching mm -hmm. or in life? You know, let, let, let's pretend we peak when we're 60 years old. Okay. What, <laughs> and that gives you maybe five, six years, seven years. I don't know, but nine. <laughs> nine oh my gosh. So well, 11, 11. What are you saying? Oh. 11. <laughs> so what, what, what's next for you? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, this year did not work out how mm -hmm. I expected it to. Um, from the standpoint of I, I never expected to go to the Olympics. Um, I knew I would be coaching an Olympic athlete, and I knew that she would be a medal mm -hmm. contender um, in, in multiple events. Uh, so that part wasn't a surprise. And, of course, you know, for her to realize that gold medal dream was uh, amazing. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was unexpected, but it was definitely welcomed. <laughs> mm. um, and so, you know, I think that when you're a coach, you think, okay, well, you know, it'd be great to coach an Olympic athlete. Well, you know, I've, I've now had a small hand in, you know, four Olympic medalists or four Olympic medals. Um, and, you know, just by chance, I guess, um, there's, there's a gold, a sil two silvers and a bronze in that. So, um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with athletes that weren't, have won an Olympic medal of every color. Um, I had the opportunity to work with athletes that gone to the world tour. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it's, there's no specific like outcome goal that I'm really focused on. Um, and that's not to say that I've conquered the world by any stretch. I can always do better. Um, but I think that just continuing to push myself to be a better coach. And I know that that's sort of like a catch all, but, you know, there, there's research that I'm doing constantly, you know, I don't have the physiology background, like I mentioned before. So I'm always trying to stay on top of mm. the, you know, the, the latest and greatest in the sport mm. and in, in endurance training in general. Um, and I think that I do a relatively good job of keeping an open mind to ideas that other people have. And then the great thing about my continuing to be somewhat athletic myself, albeit at the, at the old guy level, is that I get to try out these different ideas and concepts sort of on, you know, myself as a guinea pig and, you know, see if this new training idea or training philosophy or workout uh, works for me. And then to start to implement that uh, into some of my athletes, um, you know, regimens and workouts and just trying to keep it fresh. 
So I think that, you know, big picture, if there's one thing that I would like to continue to do, it's, it's to, it's to take that sort of that fourth value that you mentioned and continue to innovate mm -hmm. and to, um, not allow myself to rest on anyone's previous accomplishments and to really continue to aim for, you know, future accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's great to talk about Olympic athletes and world tour athletes, but the bread and butter of the people that I work with are people that, you know, uh, they, they, most of them race and, you know, have performance expectations, um, and objectives, but really it's about trying to be better humans and using this, um, sort of this, this forum to, uh, find that balance in their lives so that they can be better at the real jobs, better at, you know, being parents, better at being, uh, significant others or spouses and striking that balance. And so I get, you know, as much pleasure about those Olympic type goals yeah. and, and trying to meet and satisfy those goals as I do, you know, an actual Olympics, um, you know, and, and like I said, everyone has goals in between. Mm. Well, let's bring it back full circle and let's hypothetically, if you could coach a freshman Ben Sharp mm. in, in little five, like what would you like change or what would you stress or how would you approach that? I think that, you know, globally, you know, big picture, it's, it's, you, you nailed it on the head. I mean, like having that joy. And, and that's something that I always had with riding my bike, you know, in those early years for sure. But I think that it's so important to maintain that. And I see a lot, you know, having spent all that time with the junior national team, I see a lot of, you know, air quote, elite junior athletes uh, that don't necessarily have that joy um, and they don't last particularly long in the sport. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be one thing. And then more, you know, acutely talking about the little 500, I would say that as a coach, um, my advice to myself back then would be to be more specific with my training. Um, you know, if little 500 was the end all be all goal for that short term, you know, I said, I referenced it a couple times that, uh, my teammates and I had aspirations that went beyond the little 500 and, you know, now having pursued those goals for a number of years, I would say that I wish that I had, um, had maybe spent more time trying to be the best little 500 rider I could be rather than being the best cyclist I could be. Mm. Because what I know now is that, you know, that, that great little 500 cyclist can absolutely morph into a world-class cyclist mm -hmm. and that I, you know, that rate of progression would have been favorable to being a great little 500 rider. And, um, I wouldn't have missed out. I don't think in the long run. Mm. Yeah. Well, but like we said earlier, if, <laughs> if, you know, let's say we had won that, that race in 93, yeah. I might, you know, I, I might not be talking to you today. Right. I, I right. might be a, an English teacher in, you know, somewhere in Kentucky or something. Yeah. Who knows? You don't know. That's the mystery of it. Right. Well, Ben, I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you for your time. And it's been great to catch up with you and so glean some wisdom from you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that, Jim. And I, I appreciate the, the forum that you have here. And, uh, you know, when, when your podcast comes up and it overlaps or some people overlap with my era, or I have some familiarity with them, I definitely give it a listen. I enjoyed your, your conversation with Tom Schwegler and I enjoyed yeah. your conversation with uh, Jen Wengren. For yeah. sure. 
All right, buddy. Next time you're back in Indiana, let's connect. All right. Sounds good, Jim. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. What a great conversation. Thank you, Ben. You know, it really reminds me of how special Little 500 is and how important it is to everyone who participates in Little 5 and how it really sets us up for the rest of our life. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, you, everyone that's listening. I really appreciate it.